Hi, everyone. This is Congress to Cubicle, a podcast where we look at the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. I'm your host, Steve Goodrich, the CEO of the Center for Organizational Excellence. Today, we're going to have a conversation about the future of America. My guest today, Dave Walker, the former Comptroller General of the United States, a distinguished professor at the Naval Academy, former Defense Business Board member. One of his latest books is America in 2040, Are We Still a Superpower? He lays out a very effective story about where we are today and where we need to go from a congressional standpoint, from a legislative standpoint, and also from the standpoint of the American people and what they need to know. Dave, welcome. Good to be with you, Steve. Hope we can get together after we get past this COVID stuff. Yeah, I miss all those lunches. So I I really want to talk about your book, America in 2040, Are We Still a Superpower? You know, I've gone through this book and it is, it's such an easy read that any American could pick this up and and really understand it. Tell me, why'd you write the book? I wrote the book because I love my country, I love my family, and I'm very concerned about the future as it relates to both. I've been a longstanding proponent for fiscal responsibility, and we've clearly lost control there. But now that I'm, quote unquote, distinguished visiting professor at the Naval Academy, and I've become more immersed in national security issues, uh, it's the intersection between national security and economics that caused me to write this book. It's really divided into three parts. The first part is a wake-up call. The second part is a call to action. And the third part is a way forward. And I'm happy to cover anything you'd like me to. Well, you say in the book that by 2040, we could move from 50% to 24% of the world's GDP. What is the impact of that on our world position? Well, we've already moved from 50% of global GDP to 24%. That was before Mm COVID-19. And it's actually declined a little bit since then. Uh, And we're actually likely to go down further, not because our GDP is going to decline, but because it's not going to grow at the rate of certain other countries, including China and India, uh, among the two most prominent. Look, there are four things it takes to be a superpower. You have to have economic power, diplomatic power, military power, and cultural influence. And by far, what's most important is economic power. With economic power, you end up growing in diplomatic capability. You're able to fund your military. It's a leading indicator. Typically, when you grow economically, the others follow. And and when you decline economically, the others follow. And if you look through history, which the book does, uh, you'll see that there are some disturbing parallels between where we are and where we're headed and some past great powers, uh, including Rome. So Joe Q. Public, 2040, if we don't change, what are they going to experience that's different? Well, what they're going to experience is higher taxes, uh, less with regard to the social safety net, uh, an increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. You know, we're going to see inflation go go up again if we don't end up doing something with regard to our fiscal and monetary policies. So your dollar is not going to go as far, uh, if you will. So there's just a number of things that will end up affecting us. But the major thing is, is that we will be less secure internationally, we'll be more divided domestically, and we'll have more financial problems, whether it be uh, with regard to our retirement security or other issues that people care about. So what happens to government services? Well, what's happened is, is the government's grown too big, promised too much, and lost control of the budget. Uh, and what's happened since 1912 is the government is 10 and a half times bigger 
as a percentage of the economy now than it was in 1912. In 1912, it controlled 97% of annual spending, now controls less than 30 and declining. And the things that are getting squeezed are the things that are in the Constitution. Things like national defense, homeland security, federal judicial system, Congress of the United States, et cetera. The truth is, uh, we're going to have to end up uh, raising revenue. Uh, we're going to have to end up uh, reforming social insurance programs to make them affordable, sustainable, but still maintaining a, so- a strong social safety net. And we're going to have to reprioritize and reduce projected spending, including defense, uh, in order to be able to put our finances in order. But social insurances are, you know, and social programs are a bigger part of the, of the budget now. What do you see the impact on those? Well, they're on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, only less than 30% of the budget is so-called discretionary spending, meaning the Congress gets to decide every year how much to spend. And in some areas, we write a blank check for health care. We're the only major industrialized nation that does that. Uh, it's really dumb. Health care is very important. We need to have some level of universal health care, but we can't write blank checks. Look, don't get me wrong. Social Security is a very important program. It's a very popular program. We need to reform it, but we don't need to make major changes to Social Security. Where we're going to have to end up making much greater changes are going to be on health care because we already spend the largest percentage of our economy of any country on earth. Health care costs grow faster than the economy and faster than inflation. Something's going to have to give. You mentioned the three uh, levers of strength, human capital, investment capital, and innovation. What can the government do now to help spawn in those areas and build strength? Well, the truth is the government's been spending too much on consumption and not enough on investment. Uh, You know, we, we, we ought to be spending more with regard to critical infrastructure, with regard to basic research and development, uh, because those can help prove economic growth, provide additional opportunity, enhance our competitive posture. Uh, One of the things I talk about in the book is that we need to change the way that we budget. We should have a capital budget. We should have an operating budget. We shouldn't be trying to balance the budget. We should be trying to get debt as a percentage of the economy down to a reasonable, sustainable level. You know, we ought to get rid of the debt ceiling limit. It hasn't worked. We're the only country that has it. Focus on debt to GDP. Go to two-year budgets, which most states already have. Make some sensible changes uh, in order to make sure that we're focusing on the right things investing where we, we, we should, uh, and reducing, uh, you know, excess consumption where it makes sense. So with that, that investment and in innovation, is that governmental investment? Is that private sector investment? Is it both? It's both. It's both. It, it's, it's government uh, to the extent that it deals with basic research, okay, because in many cases, government has to take the lead on basic research. The private sector is more involved in applied research because, after all, they're looking to make money, mm-hmm. and so they want to be able to apply that basic research. Uh, but I also think that, you know, through the tax code, obviously, that you can do things to, you know, to encourage more innovation through the private sector uh, we have in the past. But we do need to differentiate between basic research and applied research uh, with regard to the preferences that we're providing. Yeah, and I was, uh, this is a little, a, a little note, but I was talking to someone in government the other day who's struggling with getting research out to the private sector and having them turn around and charge the government for it. And then five years later, 10 years later, they've got to do another contract. They've got to recompete their contracts. And they're trying to figure out who owns the rights to this stuff. And what if that contractor did improvements on it? So they're thinking about this, but there's not a lot of action towards those kinds of things. Well, there needs to be more shared interest. We can't have a situation where heads 
the private sector wins and tails, the government loses. Okay. I mean, you know, there needs to be more of a shared outcome, if you will, sharing of risk and sharing of benefits. You know, that we've seen that to a certain extent, although we need to do more of it with regard to defense contracting. You know, obviously the highest risk to the taxpayer is a cost plus contract. And, you know, the highest risk to the contractor is a fixed price contract. But there are things that you can do in between uh, that make sense, depending upon the nature of the acquisition or the, inv- or, or the research. So getting back to something you said a little bit earlier about debt, I, I assume you're saying a little bit of debt is okay. Yeah, not all debt is bad. Mm-hmm. Some debt actually helps you win wars. Uh, some debt actually helps you deal with uh, national emergencies like pandemic. Uh, you know, some debt is uh, it helps to uh, create investment for critical infrastructure and human capital and, and research and development. So not all debt is bad. Some level of debt is acceptable. Where you have a problem is that where you're where you're accumulating debt even in peacetime when you don't have a national emergency when the economy is growing and uh, where you get debt as a percentage of the economy to such a level that it's a drag on economic growth. And the two real things that you need to focus on are debt as a percentage of the economy. It's too high now and it's increasing uh, and interest as a percentage of the budget. Right now it's stabilized. Even though debt has gone up dramatically, interest rates are at historical lows. So interest expense is not a big problem today as a percentage of the budget, but interest rates are gonna go up. When we end up, you know, getting past the pandemic, when we end up having, you know, the pent-up demand, when we end up having greater velocity of money, when, when we end up having more pressure on wages and other things of that nature, inflation will go up, interest rates will go up, and then have a real problem. So what is a reasonable debt-to-GDP ratio? Well, that can be debated, okay? We're, we already have passed the all-time high, which was achieved at the end of World War II, and unlike at the end of World War II, we're going up rather than going down. You know, some countries have established uh, benchmarks. For example, if you look at Switzerland, if you look at Sweden, if you look at the European Union, uh, they try to shoot for 60% of debt to GDP. That's not the be all or end all. I think, you know, with economies large and diverse as ours is, you could justify something over 60% of debt to GDP. And that needs to be part of the public discussion and debate. At the same point in time, we need to establish a credit card limit that we shouldn't exceed a certain level of debt to GDP absent a formal declaration of war, absent a supermajority vote in Congress based upon certain criteria. Right now, it's more spending, less taxes, and obviously that compounds our problem. So what's the model when you, uh, if you get spending under control, you get debt down, how do you handle issues that come up like pandemics or wars or what have you? How do you, how do you weave that in or prepare for it ahead of time? Well, first, the way that it would work is that you would hopefully come up with an agreed upon limit that would not be exceeded absent a formal declaration of war, which we haven't done since World War II, uh, even though we've had a number of armed conflicts since then. You know, absent a defined national emergency, which could be economic, which could be uh, public health and or a combination, all right, and a supermajority vote in Congress, let's say a 60% vote in Congress that will let you override that debt to GDP limit on a year by year basis, not a permanent override, a temporary override, okay? The other thing we need to do though, is we need to establish targets and triggers. Targets to try to get debt to GDP down to a reasonable sustainable level over the next 20 plus years, all right? If we hit the target, great, nothing happens. If we do better than the target, then maybe you have a dividend. You end up getting a tax rebate. 
for the difference. Mm -hmm. If you end up not hitting the target, then maybe you have a tax surcharge for the difference. And you can also combine that with spending actions as well. So right now, there are no consequences. There are no consequences. You know, what I've always found, Steve, is that for any system to work, you have to have three things. Properly designed incentives to encourage people to do the right thing, adequate transparency to provide reasonable assurance they will, and appropriate accountability if they don't. We don't have that in our system today. And so one of the things the book talks about is that how can we apply those basic concepts to a whole range of government policies uh, in order to put us on a more prudent and sustainable path so our future can be better than our past. So if you were sitting at the, the testimony table in, in front of Congress right now, what would you tell them are the burning platform and what would you ask them to do? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to defeat COVID-19. That's priority number one. And there's no question that we're going to see an additional stimulus program for COVID-19. My personal view is if we're going to provide more money to individuals, it needs to be much better targeted uh, than the last. Mm -hmm. You know, candidly, the first round of of stimulus payments that went out, my wife and I got some of that money. That was ridiculous. It was not adequately targeted, okay? Secondly, if we're gonna provide aid to states and localities, which I think we need to, we need to make sure it's for incremental costs directly associated with COVID-19 or actions that are directly associated with COVID-19, not unrestricted grants where they can end up using it as they want and in effect try to solve some of the problems that they themselves created, mm -hmm. like huge underfunded pension and retiree healthcare obligations, if you will. So we need to do what we need to do with regard to COVID-19. Uh, and with regard to the fiscal issue, what we need to do is we need to create a statutory fiscal sustainability commission that unlike Simpson-Bowles, that the Congress and the president will buy in up front, it will be by law. It will be comprised of individuals, Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated who are respected and knowledgeable in this area. They will engage the American people in new and unprecedented ways to help build the burning platform case, get their input on potential solutions, then make recommendations to the Congress that will be guaranteed a vote in the Congress. That's what we need to do. So let's do what we have to do to de defeat COVID-19 to deal with our public health challenge, to get the economy moving again, to get people back to work, but then it's also recognized that we were on an improved and unsustainable path before COVID-19, and we're in much worse shape today, despite the fact that we face increasing challenges internationally. And so this is not just a domestic issue, it's an international and national security issue as well. You mentioned Simpson-Bowles, which everybody lauded as a, you know, a, a wonderful roadmap but then it just doesn't get implemented. How do we get there? If you were king for a day, what would we do first? And how would we really educate our Congress and our leaders and help them get there? Well, let's talk about why Simpson-Bowles was not successful. First, it wasn't statutory. Secondly, it did not engage the American people in the way that I described. Thirdly, it did not have a guaranteed vote in Congress. And fourthly, the president, President Obama at the time, abandoned them. That can't happen. So about 80 to 85% of what Simpson-Bowles recommended had strong intellectual merit and needs to be reconsidered. Although we also have to keep in mind Simpson-Bowles was 2010. This is 2021. And we're in much worse shape now than we were doing Simpson-Bowles. We also have to recognize the country's more divided now than it was at the time of Simpson-Bowles. We also have to recognize that Congress is more dysfunctional now than it was at the time of Simpson-Bowles. And so that's why 
we have to have a special mechanism that will set the table for tough choices, but will help American people understand the need for and the benefits of those tough choices for, the, for our country, for their children, and for future generations of Americans. So let, let's, let's go to the other side. If you're the president and standing up in front of the American people, how are you making the case to them? It's, it's not that difficult, you know? I mean, the fact is, is in 2012, I did a 10,000 mile, 27 state national fiscal responsibility bus tour where I engaged the American people with the facts, the truth, the tough choices, and I solicited their input. I'm talking about representative groups of voters from Northern and Southern states on solutions that would get debt to GDP down to a reasonable, sustainable level over, over about a 20-year period of time. We got 77% to 97% agreement on specific reforms in a range of areas, okay? The problem is, is that you know, a lot of politicians think that people can't handle the truth, that they're not willing to accept tough choices. That's false. But for them to be able to do that, you have to be able to build a burning platform. You have to help them understand that it's not a matter of if we're going to make these choices. It's a matter of when and what and what the consequences are going to be. And it's prudent to do it sooner rather than later. So we have more time to phase in these changes. And so we have less of a risk of a much greater financial crisis than we've had in recent time. Good point. So 100-day, 200-day plan, is there anything you'd like to recommend that President Biden do? Well, look, President Biden's going to set, as I said, priority one has to be COVID-19, okay? In addition, he needs to work on a bipartisan basis. You've got a 50-50 split in the Senate. The vice president will end up breaking tie votes. You've got a closer margin in the House than you've had in a number of years. The country is very divided. Mm -hmm. So as a result, it's very important that he try to do things where you can get meaningful bipartisan support. And I don't mean a handful or two handful of Republican votes. I mean meaningful bipartisan support. So let's do what we have to do to deal with our current challenges. But let's recognize that we have been living beyond our means. We've been not discharging our stewardship responsibilities. And we need to put a mechanism in place that will help get us uh, on a better path to a better place in the future. After all, if the president, who is the only person who's elected by all the people, the only person who has the bully pulpit, if the president doesn't lead on these types of efforts, you're going nowhere fast. I do think that President Biden will likely be a one-term president, primarily because of his age. And so that means that he's got an opportunity to do some things because he doesn't need to worry about reelection. Mm -hmm. I also know that, you know, that uh, President Biden also talks about doing things on a bipartisan basis. It's got to be in the sensible center, center right, center left, not far left, not far right. That's where it's got to be. The good news is that's where a vast majority of the American people are, and that's where the solutions are. Dave Walker, former Comptroller General of the United States, distinguished professor for the Naval Academy. Dave, I appreciate your time here today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast. You can see this podcast if you go to centerforoe.com slash podcast. You can also reach out to me at steve at center4oe.com if you have any suggestions or questions about these podcasts. Next up on our podcast, I'll be talking to Chris Mim, the Director of, of Strategic Issues at the GAO, specifically about the high risk list, how to get on it, how to get off of it, and why it matters.
I'm Steve Goodrich, your host and the CEO of the Center for Organizational Excellence. We love to have these engagements about the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.